0: The story of Job is a story of a very bad, not day, week, but probably months. And if you've ever had one of those days where it just seems like one thing after another goes wrong, you can empathize with Job. Remember, one, uh, one day in our senior year of college, my wife and I were excited because we were ready to go home and we just had to finish up the day of work and then we we're gonna hop on five, drive from Southern California back home and be able to have a chance to relax a little bit. And that that morning, as Kristen was getting ready to go to work, she locked her keys in her car. And normally Kristen is the most responsible person. She's the one that makes sure, like, hey, do you have your sermon notes for this morning? You might wanna take a Bible on stage. She's that person for me, but this that day, like, even though it was, you know, already going to be a long day, she locked her keys in her car, all right, whatever. Call AAA, come on out, open up the car, grabs the keys, heads to work, and then she calls me from work. Charles, I locked my keys in my car again. I just like... Personally, I thought it was hilarious, all right? I was like, hey, we'll we'll get back home eventually, and we got some days of vacation ahead of us. I'm fine, but she was not having it. Just one thing after another, two times locking your keys in the car in one day. Job wasn't having one of those days. He was having one of those months where it just seems like one thing after another was going wrong. Last week, Danny came up and we read Job chapter number three, and in Job chapter number three, Job laments The day that he was born, he curses that day and says, I wish that that day would have never happened. And at the end of that, Job's three friends open their mouths and they just drive the dagger into his back a little bit further and they take things from bad to worse. These conversations that Job has with his three friends are long conversations. They will stretch from chapter number four in the book of Job all the way through Job 37. And in those chapters, there's three cycles of conversation where Eliphaz will lead off, Bildad will come in for for the second position, and then Zophar will talk for the third. And they'll go through that three times and Job will give a response to each each of those people. For this morning, we're just gonna be looking at the first cycle of conversations in Job chapter 4 through 14. And I just want to point out three things that I think will hopefully be helpful to us as we wrestle with our own problems. We'll start off this morning with that first point there in your notes, whether you're taking it on paper or there in the app or just in your head. It's three notes uh, or three points. You'll be able to handle these. Uh, It's the friend's accusation. The friend's accusation, and what they're saying here to Job is, you are guilty. You are guilty. For the sake of our sanity, I won't read through the 11 chapters that makes up this first cycle of discourse, but I want to get us the cliff notes version of what Job's friends are trying to say, and Bildad is the friend that leads off this conversation. He comes out of the gate, and remember, this is right after Job has said, like, kill me now, God. I wish I had never been born. It's after that that Bildad opens his mouth. Excuse me, Eliphaz. Eliphaz opens his mouth, and in Job chapter 4, he says, he butters him up a little bit, but then he says, hey, uh, Job, consider now. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger, they perish. What Eliphaz is saying is, Job, you are guilty. Job takes two chapters. He defends his innocence. He says, no, that's not the case. You have it wrong. And Bildad picks up and adds his voice to the chorus. And here's what Bildad says in Job chapter 8. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, replied, How long will you say such things, Job? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. And so Bildad's not simply going after Job. He's saying, hey, your kids are guilty as well. And God punished them justly for their sin. He adds in Job chapter 8, verse 13, and then 20, Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. Zophar pipes in as well, and in chapter 11, then Zophar the Namathite replied, are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless, and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this. God has even forgotten some of your sins. Each of these friends come to Job and they say, Hey, Job, we want to make this very clear. You're guilty. But it wasn't just that they were trying to help him know that he was guilty. They always added on the second portion to it. They were also saying, Hey, if you will just get right with God... God will give you back all of the material blessings that you've lost. Here's what Zophar said. In Job chapter 11, he says, Yet, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face, then, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm without fear. And so Job's friends were telling him two things. One, Job, let's make this clear you're guilty but two the good news is if you perform then god will provide hopefully you don't have any friends like these right that are coming at you and just saying, hey, uh, I saw what you did this weekend, and I just want to point it out, you're guilty, all right? And the reason that these bad things are happening to you, the reason that you locked your keys in your car two times is because God is angry with you, and you have done something wrong. Hopefully those aren't the types of friends that you have. But regardless of what type of friends that you have, there always seems to be a source of condemnation that comes into our lives, isn't there? This morning I just want to talk about Two sources of condemnation I think many of us feel and many of us experience, even if it isn't our friends. The first voice of condemnation that I think is prevalent in our society, especially with us that are in this room this morning, man, really could be religion. Religion. And when we come to the Bible and, and, and we're reading it for ourselves, the Bible has no lack of negativity, does it? The Bible says just some pretty mean things about who we are. Paul was a nice guy and he wanted to point out, hey, uh, it's written, there's none righteous, not even one. You're not the exception to the rule. And just so you know, the wages of those sins that you commit, the wages of sin is death. And many of us come to the scripture, we come to the Bible, and what, or even when we come to church, what we receive from religion, what we receive from Christianity is guilt. It's weight. And hear me very clearly I am not trying to say that there is not a place for, man, clearly pointing out sin. We need to know the diagnosis before we can get to the cure. But, if what we are getting is the finger pointed at us and saying you are a sinner and the pointing out of the sin without pointing to the savior without getting to the solution for our sin that that guilt can be a heavy guilt that is placed on our shoulders that really our church can be a church that places that burden onto people's shoulders This, in these last couple of weeks, I was meeting with somebody, and he was just listing off names of kids that used to come to our youth group. And he said, Charles, this person doesn't come anymore. This person doesn't come anymore. This person doesn't come anymore. And the reason that they don't come is because when they walk into this building, when they walk into this room, they just feel judged. They feel like they're not good enough. And Jesus would say that about the religious leaders in his days. He would come to the Pharisees, and in Matthew 23, 4, he would say, the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with one finger. And so many people come to church, and they come to Christianity, and they come to the Bible, and what they receive is a weight that's placed on their shoulders, and what is told to them is you're not good enough. And if that's you in here, I'm so glad that you've come. Because the book of Job is a, is a story that you can resonate with. That if you're here and you say, that's what I've perceived when I've come to this church, can I apologize that if you've ever thought that we were pointing out your sin without also pointing to the savior and the solution for your sin, that man, I, I apologize for that. But it's not always that we need religion to heap on a burden onto our shoulders. A lot of times, we're good enough at that by just by ourselves, right? That we each have an inner critic inside of us that says, hey, 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 you want to know why you're having trouble with your marriage? You want to know why your kids are so bad? Do you know why your career kind of sucks? Do you want to know why you're having trouble with your weight? Do you know, like, what the common denominator in all those things is? You, buddy. A lot of times just ourselves, like we don't need an outside source of somebody bringing criticism into our lives, we just feel it ourselves, that the inside of ourselves, there's a voice that says, you are not good enough. My primary role here at Three Crosses is with, is with high school students, and now as a high schooler, uh, pretty much what is, what, what, what is just common to every high schooler is an iPhone, or in some way that some way to access Instagram, and then pressure that is being placed on them to perform in some capacity, whether it's academics or whether it's athletics or it's, it's, you know, performing by having a lot of fun, there's some pressure that's placed on their shoulders. And with these ingredients that go into the standard high school experience now, there is an inner critic inside each and every high schooler that is telling them, you are not good enough. You don't measure up. And what I see is just an explosion of depression, of self-harm, of just self-loathing, of eating disorders and of just relational conflicts and things that just really break them down on the inside and lead to so much unhealthiness because there's a voice inside of them telling them, you're not good enough. And I don't do a lot of counseling with adults, but, but I just have this gut feeling. I wonder if maybe the reason that we overwork Maybe the reason that we beat ourselves up, maybe the reason that we don't eat healthy, that we don't take care of our bodies, maybe the reason that we don't sleep at night is because there's a voice inside of our head and we're not sure where it comes from, but what it's reminding us time and time again is you are not good enough. That voice is so dangerous. That voice is so dangerous because there's some truth to it, right? I mean, it's the Bible that says that we've all, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That's scripture. It's inerrant. We're not going to argue with it. And there's some truth to the fact that we are not good enough. But what I love about the book of Job is that in this case, in Job's story, the Bible clearly points out that Job was not guilty, and it's not that he was totally innocent, right? Job is not Jesus. Job was not the sinless one that didn't deserve any of this. But when you're looking at Job, if you're saying, hey, is there, some, is there some nasty sin that you're hiding, that you're covering, that you are trying to, like, cover this and you deserve what has been handed to you, God would say in the introduction in chapters 1 and 2, and then Job would affirm throughout this passage, no, no, that's not the case at all. And so Job's friends were dead wrong. The guilt that they are laying on Job's shoulders is wrong. In Job chapter 42, when God shows up and, and, and makes, Job, uh, makes Job a little scared for the way that he's spoken, Job says this, uh, God says this about Job's friends. Job 42 verse 7. After the Lord has said these things, these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Timnonite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. In this story and in times in our lives, we need to have those negative voices that come into us and it says that when those voices say you are guilty, when they say you are not good enough, we need to have the courage of Job to be able to stand up and say, you may have it wrong. That may not be the case. We need to have the courage to be careful what guilt and what shame we accept as our own. Again, and hear me very clearly, I am not trying to say that there is not an appropriate place to open up the scriptures and say, search me and try me, God. See if there's any wicked way in me. Wickedness is real, sin is real. We need to know about that, but it is not always the case that we have guilt that we are carrying that God is saying, Why aren't you dealing with this? Sometimes there is a negativity that is not our fault that we should resist and not embrace. And as a church, we need to be careful about the guilt that we hand out, about pointing to sin without pointing to the Savior. Job's friends came to him and they said, we want you to know you are guilty. And that was not the case. Second thing that I want to point out this morning is Job's response. Job's response What Job says is, I am innocent. In the 11 chapters of conversation that we're covering, Job covers a lot of ground. Man, last week we looked at the anger that he experienced and just like the, the cursing of the day that he was born, and some of that carries into these 11 chapters that that we're talking about this morning, and there's other things. There's times when Job gets sarcastic with his friends and says things like, man, you must be the only person who has wisdom, and then it'll come back like, don't I have a right to say anything? But one of the things that Job consistently maintains is that he is innocent. He's innocent. This is the premise of the book, that Job is an innocent person that God chose in his wisdom to allow to suffer. And as we read Job 31, Job is a man of purity. Job is a man of character. Job is a man who who is generous with those who are around him. And there is not some hidden sin that he's not hiding. It doesn't mean that he's perfect. When God shows up, he does repent in ashes. And he says, like, God, I'm just going to be quiet now because I am not you. So it's not that Job is sinless, but there is an innocence that he is holding on to. Here's what Job says in Job chapter 6, verse 24, and if you're like furiously rushing through there, I knew that I was going to be hopping all over the place, and so you can just, you can look up here, you can relax, I got it, but if you want to double check me, all right, see how fast you are. Job chapter 6, 24, 29, and 30. Job says, teach me, and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. And then he says to his friends, relent, do not be unjust, reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? In Job 12, verse 4, he says, I have become a laughingstock, laughingstock to my friends, though I called upon God, and he answered, a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Job 13, how many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me, offen- show me my offense and my sin. Job is saying that he's innocent, and this is actually an important portion of this story. Tremper Tremper Longman III, fancy guy, uh, wrote a commentary on the book of Job, and what he says is that Job's maintaining his innocence is actually an important part of this book, and you can specifically see it when you compare Job to other suffering saints' books that were in his period of time, not from a Jewish heritage, but from the, the nations that were around him, that this this story of a suffering saint was a genre of literature that existed in that day. And what Job, in the, and the way that Job differs from all of those suffering saint stories is that Job maintains his innocence. And what's significant about that is that Job could only maintain his, his innocence in a Jewish context. Here's what Tremper Longman says about the gods of the ancient Near East. The gods of the ancient Near East were considered somewhat unpredictable and inexplic- excuse me inexplicably inexplicably moody. Lacking clear revelation from their gods, the people of the ancient Near East could not know the gods' standards of righteousness. But that is not at all what we see in the book of Job. Job says, no, no, I know what God requires, and I have measured up to those requirements. Job knew that he was righteous before God, and he was confident in his relationship with God. And, and in our day and age, we don't much like a God like, that kind of like draws boundaries and says, hey, these are the boundaries in which I want you to live. These are the standards that I have for you. These are the rules that I have to govern your life. We just kind of want ultimate freedom, right? We want to do whatever we want to do. But what I love about Job is Job knows the lines that God's set for him. And he says, I've maintained my innocence within those lines. I think sometimes as as people who are living in a culture where she says, no, no, there should be absolutely no boundaries that are set for you. You should just have ultimate freedom that that we don't realize the weight that that places on us. My little daughter loves coloring pages. And so frequently she'll come up to me and says, Dad, uh, can you print me off? a Moana coloring page, a Frozen color page, a Princess color page, right? And so, and so we'll spend like four or five minutes and we'll be on the phone and, and we, we, print, we, we pick out you know what coloring page, sends it to the printer, she runs over, grabs it and colors in the pages. And what's nice about those pages is they give you the outline, they give you the lines that you should stay in. And if you just like of kind of stay within the lines, you are going to have a drawing that kind of makes sense. But in our day and age, like, Don't give me those lines i'm going to draw my own lines i just want a clear white piece of paper and i want to draw wherever i want to draw but then when we look at the piece of paper and it's a mess we're like well how did that happen job knew the lines and this is an important idea in job where he says i've maintained my innocence when i was reading this out of the book of the job out of the book of job what i what i was just encouraged by was man I want to have an in, I want to have integrity like he has integrity, to be able to stand before God and say I am innocent. Woo, man! And I want to pray to God say, God, search me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. I, I I actually want to deal with that, not because I'm afraid of getting caught, but because I want to stand before God and say, God, I'm innocent before you. Not only does it get me motivated to do that, man, I'm just excited that I can. That he's handed me his rules, right, and that he tells us, hey, my my rules aren't even burdensome, right? Like I, I, I'm going to get real hard on you. The biggest commandment that I'm going to give to you here, how about this: love God, love each other. How could you? They're not even hard, right? <laughs> Job maintains his innocence, but even as Job is resisting the negative thoughts. Even as Job is maintaining his integrity, maintaining his innocence, that doesn't fix the problem, does it? Man, he's still miserable. He's still going through it. He's still suffering. And so, the third thing that I want us to notice this morning is Job's request. Job's request. Job's request is this: I want to see God. I want to see God. It is in this request that Job's suffering and Job's problems find their ultimate resolution. Where Job's suffering is brought to an end and he is restored into a right relationship with God. Here's what Job says in Job 13.3. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. And as he talks, as he comes to this, uh, comes to this conclusion, God I'm gonna argue with you. There's two things that, there's kinda like two tensions that he feels. On the one side, he's like, I know I'm right. God, you're in the wrong, right? And what he says in Job 13, 18, now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. He's like, God, you got it wrong, I'm right. Man, talk about a little bit of pride, right? Like, Job was not that innocent. But as he's coming to God and saying like, I will be vindicated, On the other side, like, he's not a fool. He knows that standing before God is going to be difficult. And so here's what he says in Job chapter 9. Job 9, 32 through 35. Job says, he, speaking of God, is not a man that I might answer him, that we might might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand on us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would not frighten me no, would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. And so Job's in this place of tension. What, what he knows is in order to fix this, I have to meet with God. And on the one hand, like, God's going to admit that I'm right because there's this innocence that I have. But on the other hand, how can I possibly meet with God? I'm just a man. And there's nobody to go between for us. And so Job's in this place of frustration. I know what I need, but I can't get it. This is my favorite part of the book. Because I've read the end of the book. I know that Job, in this tension, he says, I need to meet with God. And I know Job does meet with God. And absolutely not. He's not vindicated. When he meets with God, he repents and just says, "Like I will be silent now. But he finds something so much better than vindication. He finds restoration. His relationship with God is restored. And as a symbol of that, God blesses him with the material things as well. He finds restoration. But even more exciting than just reading these chapters in the context of Job itself is reading these chapters in the context of the whole Bible. Because Job comes and he says, I'm frustrated because on one hand, I know that I need God, but I can't get to God. How can I make this happen? So when we come and we're reading through Job, we read what he says in Job chapter 9, verse 33. If only there were someone, someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand on us both. And then we go to 1 Timothy, and what Paul says is that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What Job wanted was somebody to go between him. Paul says, we have that, we have that. When he says there in Job chapter nine again, if only there were someone to remove God's rod from me, this this punishment, so that his terror would frighten me no more. And we come to Romans chapter eight and we say, there's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We have that. Job, you were wanting for somebody to take away God's punishment from you. We have that in Jesus. We come to Job chapter seven. Job says, why don't you pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? And we come to 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we read the book of Job, in light of the New Testament, all of these things that Job's agonizing over, that he's wrestling with, it he says, there's no way that I can come to God. God says, man, you don't have a high priest that is unaffected by the things that you've gone through. Jesus was in all ways tempted as you were yet without sin, so come boldly into the throne of grace. To find grace to help in your time of need. That we have in Jesus all of the things that Job longed for. It was a perfect storm. I was, I was, uh, it was, it was a Saturday, Friday or Saturday afternoon. I honestly don't remember. Uh, and inside of me, I wanted like the three things that that I was thinking. Man, I, I want to do great at these three things. Is man, I want to be a great dad. I want to hang out with my kids and play. It's Saturday. It's a weekend. I want to make it a great weekend for them. I want to be a good husband, and so I'm trying to clean up the house and like, uh, you know, just just tidy things up so that Kristen doesn't come home and be like, "What is wrong with this place?" And I want to be a, I want to be a good pastor, and so I find myself on a Friday or a Saturday, I'm listening to an audiobook, I'm trying to pick up the house and trying to just get things ready for when Kristen comes home, and then maybe like. Maybe when I get that done and I'm, I'm ready to teach on Sunday because I've listened to this audio book and I'm prepared and I have something to say, uh, that I can be a good pastor, that I could be a good husband, that I could be a good dad. But then like, have you ever, like, those are good desires, right? But but sometimes, like I said, it was just this perfect storm where it's like, like I'm trying to listen to my audio book and clean and... I'm sure they weren't actually doing this, but I just felt like my kids were like throwing Legos at me. That's like the picture that I have in my mind, you know, I'm just like, ugh. And so like I can't concentrate on my book because my kids are throwing Legos at me, but at the same time, like I wanna love my kids, but if I love my kids, then I'm not gonna be prepared for Sunday, and if I don't clean this house, then I'm not being a good husband. And all of a sudden, there was just this weight, this weight that was on my shoulder that says, Charles, you're not a good pastor, you're not a good dad, and you are not a good husband. I'm, I'm sitting there going, ah, oh, you're right. The book I was listening to, was What's So Amazing About Grace? And as I'm sta- as I'm standing there cleaning the room, telling my kids, be quiet and get upstairs, so I can make, so I can be a good dad for you. <laughs> as I'm sitting there, I, I honestly don't remember exactly what line it was in the book, but what came through was that hey. God's love for you is not contingent on whether or not you preach a good sermon. It's not contingent on whether or not you have a clean house. It's not contingent on whether or not your kids have fun or they think that you're the best dad ever. God loves you regardless. And he'll never love you any more or love you any less. And in that moment, I remember I, I was right by the bunk bed listening to these things with Legos being thrown at me and I just like, Ugh. And in that moment, I met with God. And that, as I met with God, all of, the, all of the you are guilty, all of the negative accusations, all of those things, it didn't matter. Me, me, me maintaining my own innocence, it doesn't matter. I have Jesus' innocence. That when we meet with God, our life's biggest problems fade away. This morning, hopefully you don't have terrible friends. But you may have a negative voice that's inside your head saying, you are not good enough. And hopefully, like Job, you're maintaining your innocence. And you say, no, God, like, I'm righteous by the, by the, through the revelation that you've given me. Like I'm trying my best. And you can have the innocence of Job. But where this is going to find resolution for you is when you meet with God. And you find in Jesus that all of the frustrations that Job was experiencing in Jesus, man, we get all of those blessings. We have a mediator. We have a high priest who knows us and empathizes with us. We have a forgiveness of our sins. And that in Jesus, his grace makes all of the suffering that we go through bearable. That my grace is sufficient for you. I want everybody in this room to know Jesus the way that I know Jesus. To know Jesus as the person that that is the ultimate good in our lives. The band's going to come on up and we're going to sing one last song. And as they sing, In Christ Alone, would we be looking to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith? who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, endured the shame, and made a way for us to be right with him. Because it's when we are right with Jesus that everything else fades away.